Our Father, as we come and gather today to study your word, we ask, Lord, that it would teach us, correct us, reprove us, and train us for works of righteousness, for the glory of Christ. Lord, we pray that your word would accomplish these things in our lives for the glory and for the majesty and the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So again, that is Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 to, uh, 4 to 9 is what we'll be looking at today. Over the course of the last 40 or 50 years, there have been two vicious and very important battles that have taken place within the American Evangelical Church. Both of these were over crucial issues, issues that lay at the very foundation of the Christian faith, and it's been kind of an intramural, a thing that's taken place within the church. It's not a battle with people outside the church, with unbelievers outside the church. These are two battles inside of the church. The first is over the issue of inerrancy. And if you're not exactly familiar with what inerrancy means, the doctrine of inerrancy is basically the doctrine that the Word of God, the Bible, is without error in all that it teaches. And in the late 70s or early 80s, there were some people who were coming up with some really funny ideas about Scripture. And these were people who were scholars, and they were writing commentaries, and it, it sparked a fierce debate And so what ended up happening is the Evangelical Theological Society formed the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy, ICBI, and they drafted a Chicago statement on inerrancy, drawing the boundaries of of what uh, what inerrancy consisted of and what was outside of the boundaries of, uh, of inerrancy. And churches... And scholars and seminaries all signed on to this statement of inerrancy. It's worth noting, however, that in our day and age, there has been an incredible resurgence in people who deny inerrancy. And I'm not just talking about people on the internet. I'm talking about seminaries. I'm talking about scholars, people who write commentaries. I'm talking about pastors This is still a debate that is going on, but that's the first one that's taken place over the course of the last 40 or 50 years. The second issue is just as important because this is an issue that lies right at the heart of the gospel, and that is over the nature of saving faith. The nature of saving faith. The question might be, what does biblical faith actually look like? What does legitimate faith look like? And I hate to say it, but the answer, the answers to the questions that you ask might depend on who you ask. On the one hand, you have a movement called the Free Grace Movement. Again, that started in the 80s. Uh, It's also known as Easy Believism. You may have heard it by that name. Uh, It was championed by Zane Hodges and some teachers at Dallas Theological Seminary. And basically, this, uh, this movement, Easy Believism or Free Grace, affirms the ancient heresy of antinomianism. Antinomianism. Now, if you were to break that word down to figure out what it means, you know what anti means, right? Anti is against. Namos 
in Greek means law. So it essentially means uh, against the law. Basically, what it boils down to, it's the belief that Christians have absolutely no obligation to the moral law. Uh, no, no need for obedience, no need for gr- uh, growth in, in Christ's likeness. None of these things are required of the Christian. This view flowed out of a desire to be true to the doctrine of faith alone. They're saying faith alone is, is all that saves. And actually people who oppose them you know, would agree with the same thing, would agree with the same statement. But their idea is that a person can go to church and they can hear the gospel and they can raise a hand or they can fill out a commitment card or they can say a sinner's prayer and they can walk out the door and they can live their life however they want and they can live with the assurance that they are saved even if they become an atheist. And so under the free grace movement or, or easy believism, it's possible you can invent a category called an unbelieving Christian, which is as ridiculous as it sounds, honestly, but this is the logical conclusion of this movement. The other side of the battle affirms that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, but as Martin Luther argued, we're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. In other words, the faith by which we're saved is not a faith that stands alone. It's accompanied, it's characterized by certain attributes, by certain things such as good works, such as good fruit, including things like confession and repentance and obedience to God's Word. You'll remember, as we have been studying the life of Abram, that God elected Abram, God appeared to Abram, and God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans, his homeland, to go to uh, the land of Canaan. And even though Abram obeyed imperfectly, he did obey. We saw last week that Abram's life demonstrates, it exemplifies what biblical faith looks like, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, under the Old Covenant, under the, the old, older covenants of the Old Testament, and under the New Covenant. We saw last week that faith without works is dead, as James said. We also saw that works without faith is sin, since anything without faith is sin. And we saw that legitimate biblical faith is characterized by good works, good fruit. So today's passage is Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 to 9. And we're going to continue to study the nature of saving faith in our passage today. We're actually going to see six characteristics in the six verses that we're going to study. There are six distinct characteristics of saving faith in our passage today. And we're going to see that while obedience does not earn your salvation, And while obedience and good works do not cause your salvation, and while obedience and good works do not even add to your salvation, they nevertheless demonstrate that your salvation is legitimate. They demonstrate that your faith is a living faith, not a dead faith, but that it's a living, real faith. And so thus, when you you see these things in your lives, you can walk in assurance with the Lord. So our passage today starts with, Verses 4 and 5 of Genesis chapter 12. Let's look at these two verses. It says, So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Let's remember that Abram is referred to in the New Testament as the father of the faith. He's referred to as Father Abraham because his faith exemplifies biblical faith. And so the question that we're going to be asking today of the text, and this is a good Bible study tool, ask questions of the text. The question that we're going to launch from today is what can we learn about the nature of saving faith from the life of Abram? And the answer is a lot. We're going to learn a lot. In fact, we're going to learn six distinct things today. The first thing that we see, the first thing that Abraham's or Abram's faith demonstrates is that biblical faith hears God's Word. Biblical faith hears God's Word. Now when I say that, I'm not talking about the ear on your head. I'm not talking about the fact that you have an ear canal and sound waves travel through it and there sends a signal to your brain which gives you information. That is not what I'm talking about. A few weeks ago... Um, you might remember when we were covering the parable of uh, the, the soils, that hearing isn't physical hearing, it's hearing with the ears of your heart, not the ears on your head. Jesus would often say, let him who has ears to hear, hear. He said that ten times uh, in the, the four gospel messages. Him who has ears to hear, let him hear. In verse 1, we see that God gave Abram some very specific directions. If you look back at verse 1, he says to Abram, go from your country, that's number one, and your kindred, that's number two, and your father's house, that's number three, to the land that I will show you. So he gives him three very specific instructions. And then we go to verse 4, and we read, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Abram went as the Lord told him. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes from hearing. Faith comes by hearing. All who have believed, all who have been saved, have heard and responded. So faith comes by hearing. That's including Abraham. And this is where it starts. Now we know that in Abram's day, there was no Bible for him to consult. For him to get the Word of God, uh, God would have to show himself to Abram himself. Uh, there was no Bible for him to study. There was no Bible for him to consult. There was no Bible for him to learn from. The Bible had not been written yet. And so, uh, Abram didn't have the luxuries that we have. We have more Bibles than we know what to do with in our culture. But before the Bible was written, God would nevertheless communicate with people. Sometimes he would just speak in an audible voice. If you remember when Jesus was being baptized in the Jordan River, how did God speak to the people when he said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased? It was just an audible voice. It wasn't through an inanimate object. It wasn't through a prophet. It wasn't through anything. It was just God speaking from the sky. So sometimes God would just speak in an audible voice. Sometimes God would speak through inanimate objects. If you're familiar with the story of Moses. You know that he found a burning bush, and that was God speaking to him through this, this inanimate object. Bush, bushes don't speak, but God can speak through inanimate objects. So sometimes that's how God speaks. Sometimes he speaks by sending an angel. Sometimes he speaks through prophets. 
Sometimes he speaks by sending the angel of the Lord, who is not the same as just any old angel. The angel of the Lord is Jesus himself in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Messiah. And so this seems to be a case since God appeared to him and God told Moses that no one may see God and live. This seems to be a clear case in which the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, appeared to Abram to call him to go to the land of Canaan. So the question that we might have is, does God still speak to us that way today? Not normatively. Not normatively. The charismaniac would say, you know, I feel like God is telling me this, or God is, has, has put this on my heart, or God is telling me that, or whatever. You may have heard the story of Oral Roberts, He was a prosperity teacher in the 80s. He came to prominence in the 80s, and he told his listening audience that if they didn't cough up $8 million, God had specifically told him that he would kill Oral Roberts if they didn't cough up the $8 million. Now, they did cough up the $8 million, so we don't know what would have happened if they hadn't, but that is not how God speaks to us today. That is not how God speaks to us today. Today, He speaks through His Word. He speaks primarily, normatively, through His Word. The Bible contains everything that God wants us to know about Him, about salvation, about anything. It contains everything that we are to know. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, the things that are revealed belong to us. And what are the things that are revealed? The Bible. This is what God wanted us to know. But we also have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who gives us a lens through which we can understand the text, through which we can make sense of the text. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the natural man, that is the person who does not have the Holy Spirit, cannot understand spiritual things. And so we have to understand that it's necessary not only to have the Bible, but to have the Holy Spirit help us to understand the Bible, which is one reason we should always pray for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text for us so that we may understand it. And not only understand it, but that we may have the conviction to obey. That we may have the strength and the wisdom to apply these things to our lives that are contained in the Word of God. There was a time in John chapter 10 when Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Which sheep hear Jesus' voice? Is it only the sheep that were around in Jesus' time? Is it only a select few, the the really, really spiritual sheep who, who hear the voice of Christ? Is it just kind of random? No, it is all of His sheep. If you consider very carefully what Jesus said, He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Who is them? It's the sheep that he knows. It's the sheep that hear his voice. And they follow me, he says. So all the sheep that follow him, all the sheep that he knows, hear his voice. All of Christ's sheep hear his voice. Now, keep that in mind. Keep in mind what he just said there. And listen very carefully to what we read in Romans chapter 10. Is anybody studying, uh, or does anybody have the New American Standard Bible with them? Okay, Carolyn, uh, follow along with me here in verses 13 and 14. I'm reading from the ESV. Verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then 
will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? Does yours have of in there? Of whom? The New American Standard Bible does not have the word of in there. And there's a very good reason that theirs says, how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And that reason is because the word isn't in the Greek. It's not there. When translators translate, they have to insert words and take out words to make sense of, of whatever it's saying. The word the Greek does have an, uh, a word that gets translated as of, but the word of is not in there. And so I take the view that the word of should not be in there, and that this is saying that when people hear the gospel, when people hear the word of God proclaimed, they are hearing the voice of Christ if they are his sheep. Biblical faith hears God's Word. And this is why the author of Hebrews would say this. He'd say, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. What does it mean to harden your heart? It means to resist what God is saying to you. What God has laid on your heart. What God is pointing out in your life that must change. Years ago, when I was getting my my master's degree, I had a, a... pretty good friend who believed that he had heard the Word of God. And he believed that God had told him that he should divorce his wife. And the reason that he should divorce his wife is because, well, she wasn't really the one for him. And this is a true story. He believed that, that, that because she wasn't his soulmate, a term which isn't biblical and the concept isn't biblical, but because she wasn't his soulmate, he was free to divorce her. Now, this is a woman who had never been unfaithful to him. She had supported him. She had loved him. And yet, he believed that God had told him to divorce his wife. The Bible tells us that God hates divorce. It doesn't say He dislikes it. It doesn't say He doesn't prefer it. It says He hates divorce. And the principle is this. There is nowhere in Scripture that that we are going to find a contradiction with what God tells us. right? If If we feel like God is directing us to do something, it is never going to contradict His Word. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever encourage divorce. Nowhere in Scripture does he ever tell someone, that's not your soulmate, go ahead and leave. Never. Never. No. God hates divorce. Now, God allows for divorce under some very specific circumstances, but it is an option. It's not mandatory. God will not privately tell you. God will not privately reveal to you something that is in opposition to what His Word clearly teaches us. My friend did not hear the voice of God. I don't know what he heard. It's possible that he heard the voice of a demon. I don't discount that. I don't say that that's impossible. I think it's probably likely that he just had a wild imagination that led him to sin and led him to feel okay about his sin. And by the way, today he is as far away from God as anybody I've ever seen. And that was nine or ten years ago. So Abram heard God's word. And Abram believed God's word. But he did more than hear it. 
Biblical hearing includes heeding. So the second principle is that biblical faith heeds God's Word. Biblical faith hears God's Word. Biblical faith heeds God's Word. It obeys God's Word. And that's not to say that we are obedient in order to be saved. No, there is nothing that we can do to be saved. We can't earn it. We can't, uh, we can't cause it. God must initiate it. God must do it. He must be the one to save. So we're not saying that obedience causes salvation, causes us to be saved. We're saying that obedience flows from salvation. We're obedient because we are saved. We're obedient because God has put a heart of flesh inside of us. He's replaced the heart of stone so that we can obey Him, so that our desires are changed to align with His desires and His values. Abram heeded God's Word. Abram obeyed. He, he obeyed imperfectly. Granted, but he did obey. He brought his father along with him. He was told to leave his father's household. He was told to leave his kindred, and yet his father and Lot come with him, which resulted, by the way, in a layover in the land of Haran. We saw in chapter 11 that they set off for Canaan, but they settled in the land of Haran, which is where his father died. We have no idea how much time was lost there. We can assume that it was a pretty significant amount of time, but we don't know exactly how much. The Bible's silent on the amount of time that was spent in this layover. But once his father passed away, Abram left Haran, and he headed for Canaan. Look at verse 5 with me. You'll see that it tells us that, uh, that he did not leave Haran alone. It says he, he brought Sarai, his wife. It says he brought Lot, his nephew, all the possessions that they had gathered. And then we read, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And in our culture, in our context, in our worldview, when we see that, I know what you're probably thinking right off the bat. You're thinking that he, he, that he had slaves, that he acquired slaves in Haran. That was what I initially thought. And I thought I better look into that to make sure that that's what is going on. And the thing that we need to understand is that the word acquired doesn't have a direct English uh, e equivalent. You can't just translate it, you know, literally. It's very difficult to translate it literally into English. There are several things that it can imply. And so if you go back, if you go really far back and look at ancient rabbinical Jewish commentaries, you'll find that their interpretation, they didn't even consider slavery their interpretation of it was that Abram had, in the land of Haran, he had told people about what had happened to him. He had told people that God had, had appeared to him and called him to the land of Canaan. And as a result, he had proselytized. He had evangelized. He told people about what he had seen. And these people had said, hey, we want to go with you. We want to worship this God too. And so I think that seems a little bit more likely. While in Haran, he told people about God, and they joined his caravan on the way to the land of Canaan. And so Abraham has this layover, but he does end up obeying God. He sets out to continue this journey that is roughly 800 miles long. If you can imagine traveling not by car, not by train, not by airplane, 800 miles as a 75-year-old. That sounds pretty tough. That, that doesn't sound like something I will be able to do when I'm 75. 
Abram heard the word of God, he believed the word of God, and he heeded the word of God. He obeyed what God had told him to do. Biblical faith is obedient. That is part of the nature of biblical faith. It is obedient, however imperfect that obedience might be. We understand that there, uh, there will be times when we sin. 1 John chapter 1 makes it very clear that the person who says they have no sin, the truth is not in them. And so we recognize we still have sin residing in us. We still sin from time to time. But there is obedience if we are truly saved, however imperfect that obedience may be. So biblical faith hears God's Word. Biblical faith heeds God's Word. And that sets the foundation for what comes next in the next four verses. Look at verses, uh, the end of verse 5 to the end of verse 9 with me. It says, When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. So Abram leaves the land of Haran. He comes to the land of Canaan and he goes to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. The indication here is he doesn't just stop at the border. He goes. He keeps going. He reaches the border and he keeps going. And they come to this place that was known, that had a population, where Abram would be a stranger in a strange land. He would be a citizen of another kingdom, not the land that he was living in. He was a pilgrim. He and his people were, were pilgrims. They were travelers. They were sojourners. Listen to what we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 10. The author of Hebrews tells us this. He says, By faith Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This helps us to understand the third thing, the third characteristic of saving faith, of biblical faith that we see in the life of Abram. And that is that biblical faith means living as a stranger in a strange land. It means living as a kingdom of, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, not as a citizen of this world, not first and foremost. That is a distant second citizenship. Our identity is rooted in our citizenship in heaven, not in anything else, not in the country that we live in, not, in, not on the planet that we live on. Our identity is rooted in our citizenship in heaven. Abram was an outsider as far as the Canaanites were concerned, he was just some wanderer coming through the land. They don't seem to be too bothered by him at this point. But he had different values than they had. 
He had different ambitions than they had. He had different desires than they had. He had different affections than they had because he was a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of the world. Let me ask you, do you ever look at the world? Do you ever look at the things that are going on in the world and feel that way? Do you ever feel like a stranger in a strange land? Do you ever feel like, where did these people that I'm surrounded by get their values? Where did they get their ambitions, their desires? How can they, how can they love the things that they love? Do you ever, when you see the, the, the sinners prospering, when you see sinners doing well and flourishing around you, people who don't know God, doing better than you are maybe. Do you ever have to stop and remind yourself, ah, this world is not my home. Do you ever have to do that? Are you living as a citizen of another kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven? And do you share the world's values or the values of heaven, the values of God? Abram is a citizen of another kingdom. He's looking forward to a city. And I want to laugh because I've heard the song. He's looking for a city built by God. You guys know which song I'm talking about? Hilarious song. Google worst church song ever uh, and, and watch the video sometime. He's looking forward to living in a city that's built by God. And that's what he's living for. He's living in light of that not in light of where he is at the time. What about you? What about you? Shechem is the place that he goes to. Shechem is found actually in the geographical center of the land of Canaan, and that's Abram's first stop. Again, he doesn't stop at the border. He goes on to Shechem. And Moses reminds us, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land And it's almost like he's reminding us that in this world, if you're living as a citizen of another kingdom, in this world there will be trouble. In this world there will be people who have drastically different values than you have if you're living as a citizen of heaven. And where in Shechem does he go? He goes to the oak tree in Moreh. This is actually the religious center. The word more means oracle or teacher, spiritual oracles or spiritual teachers. So the tree would have been where these Canaanites in this region gathered to hear the false pagan oracles of the prophets as the prophets would seek to, to, to determine the will of their pagan gods by observing and listening to the rustling of the leaves. But Abraham, Abram encounters God there again. God appears to Abram right there, apparently, once again. And he gives him a promise. He says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Right there in front of these people who are gathered to worship false demonic gods. God appears to him. We don't know if the Canaanites were able to see him or not. But Abram did. Abram did. 
And notice that God doesn't promise this land to Abram. He promises it to Abram's offspring. What offspring? If you'll remember from the previous chapter, he has no offspring. He's an old man. His wife's womb has been barren all these years. And the promise is made to his offspring. Now, if, if you were Abram, what, what would your, be your thought at this point? You know, like, what offspring, God? But he doesn't ask questions. He hears God's Word. He believes God's Word. And then what does he do? He worships. He worships. He builds an altar in the presence of his enemies, in the presence of God's enemies, and he worships God right there. He builds an altar, showing us the fourth characteristic of legitimate biblical faith. Biblical faith hears God's Word. Biblical faith heeds God's Word. Biblical faith means living as a stranger in a strange land. And biblical faith worships God. Biblical faith worships God. Now, I'm not just talking about coming to church, although church is important and church is part of worship. No, worship is a lifestyle. Worship isn't just something that you do every, every now and then when you have, a, you, know, you have a box that you check off or it's on the calendar and so you do it. No, worship is a lifestyle. Abram worships God wherever he goes. If you look at his life, he worships God wherever he goes. He immediately goes up to the hill country. And we're not exactly sure why. It doesn't tell us why he goes to the hill country. Maybe the Canaanites drove him up there. Maybe he went up there because he realized that this land was not going to be his. It was going to belong to his offspring. But do you see what he's doing? He he goes up to the hill country and what does he do there? He builds another altar. Everywhere he goes, he worships God, regardless of how the people around him feel about it, regardless of how the culture feels about it, regardless of what it may cost him personally. The pagans who saw him, by the way, had to be thinking, what is this guy doing? You know, when, when they worshipped their gods, they would have an idol, or they'd have an image, or they'd have a statue, or something like that, and they, they would present offerings to those gods. But here's Abram worshipping the invisible God that you can't see with your eyes, and you can't hear with your physical ears, and he's worshipping right in front of them, and they've got to be thinking, what God could he possibly be worshipping? They're probably thinking that he's nuts. And so maybe they keep their distance from him. He sets up camp. And I think that's kind of odd too. He doesn't build a home. He doesn't build a house. What does he do? I mean, God has led him 800 miles to come to this place and he doesn't build a house there. Instead, he sets up tents. And and we all recognize the the incredible difference between a tent and a house. A house is going to stay there. A tent, you can just fold it up and take it with you. And so the message that he's sending with his actions is that even though he's come 800 miles, he's still available to whatever God would lead him to do. A tent is just temporary. A tent can be moved. The tent indicates that he is a sojourner, that he's ready to go wherever God leads him, as if to say, where now, God? And the altars tell us that Abram was a worshiper. 
that he loved to worship God. Do you love to worship God? I mean, not just something that you do and, and you, you had a really good church service or whatever, you really enjoyed the church service, but beyond that, do you love to worship? For me, sometimes I'll come over and, and play my bass and, and learn a new song and worship that way. Sometimes it's just I, I'm praying and, and I'm just stricken and, and, and worship right wherever I am. But I do it imperfectly. I'm not doing it all the time. I'm flawed. I recognize But the question is, do you love to worship? How important is worship to you? Is it just something that you do on Sunday mornings, or is it a lifestyle for you? Is it something that you take with you wherever you go? In the presence of your enemies, or in the presence of those who do not know and resist the will of God, how eager are you to worship God in their presence? Finally, we see a fifth quality of biblical faith. Biblical faith calls upon the name of the Lord. Look at verse 8 with me. The end of verse 8. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what does that mean? Does that mean raising your hand at a revival? Or after church, when the pastor prompts you to pray if you want to be saved, or to raise your hand if you want to be saved? Does it mean you've said the sinner's prayer? Does it mean you've just said, Jesus, I actually listened to a sermon this past Easter where the pastor was preaching on this verse, and he said, okay, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, so on the count of three, we're all going to say Jesus together. And while it's funny in one sense, on the other hand, it's absolutely repulsive because that is not what Paul meant. It's not just lip service. We have to understand that being saved, we're we're saved by faith, not by lip service unto God. So the indication is that this is much, much more than just lip service. We should remember that Jesus told us that on that day, on the last day, many will come to him and say, Lord, Lord. They got his title, right? Lord, Lord. Did we not do all of these incredible things, amazing things, miraculous, supernatural things in your name? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, I never knew you. He says, I never knew you. They thought they knew him, but they didn't. They called his name, but they didn't know him. And so he says, I never knew you. Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the opposite of of lawlessness? Obedience. Obedience. And so we have to understand also that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, he said, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So, Calling on the name of the Lord involves much more than just saying the name of Jesus or saying the name of the Lord. It involves being led, being convicted, being guided, being empowered by the Holy Spirit to place saving faith in Christ. Calling on the name of the Lord 
is having saving faith in Him. It's believing in His promises. And if you've never done that, if you have never called upon the name of the Lord, maybe you've said it with your lips, maybe you've said a prayer, maybe you've filled out a commitment card, maybe you've even walked an aisle, but you don't see all these other characteristics in your life, I beg you right now to be reconciled to God by believing in Christ, by seeing your sin and realizing that there is no other way for you to be reconciled to God other than through the the atonement, the substitutionary atonement of Christ on your behalf. On the cross, He took the sins of His people upon Himself and He also took God's punishment against those sins upon Himself in His body. And in exchange, He imputed, He transferred His perfect righteousness. Not your righteousness, but the righteousness of God to His people so that they could stand before Him on the last day and not hear, away from Me, but they would hear, welcome home. And so if you've never done that, I invite you right now not to say a prayer, not to do something other than to believe in Jesus and to look at your life Look at the things that have to change and ask Him to change those things in you. You cannot change your life before you come to Him. He's the one who has to change your life. And He will. That's what we see in this passage. Those are five characteristics of saving faith. The nature of saving faith. But there is going to be a sixth. As as far as we know, the Canaanites couldn't have cared less, by the way about what Abram's doing. As far as we know, there were no converts. He calls on the name of the Lord. He worships the Lord. And they apparently were completely unmoved by it. They apparently ignored Abram and his caravan. And in His mercy, God would spare them for 700 years. They resisted Him. They rebelled against Him. And God would show mercy to them for 700 years until Abram's descendants would come into the land. And you may rebel against God and you may resist God and He might be merciful unto you and let you continue in your ways. And that is His judgment against you that you would continue to live that way. But those who call on the name of the Lord, those who place saving faith in Christ will be saved. As you think about your life, as you think about your faith, Do you see these five qualities reflected in your life? However imperfect they may be, however small they may be, do you see these qualities nevertheless? When the Word of God is preached, when the Word of God is proclaimed, do you hear it as evidenced by the fact that you heed it? Because if you don't heed it, you haven't heard it. Does the Word of God matter to you? Does the Word of God disturb you? Does the Word of God shake you? Does it change you? Does it correct you? Does it rebuke you? Are you eager to obey it? Even when it might be difficult. Even when it might be costly. Are you living as a stranger in a strange land? With your eyes set on heaven in light of eternity rather than living in light of whatever your circumstances are now? 
Are you living for the pleasures of this world or are you living for the treasures of heaven? How comfortable are you living in the world? How much do you resemble the world? How much do you resemble the culture around you? Do you just blend in or is there something different about you? Do you have different values? Do you have different desires? Do you have different affections and ambitions that are reflected in God's values? Do you love to worship? Do you love to worship? And do you truly believe that Jesus is Lord as made evident by the way that you live your life and the decisions that you make. Because for him to be Lord means for him to be your master. For him to be the one who calls the shots in your life. Is that his relationship to you? Biblical faith is an obedient faith. Biblical faith is a God-honoring and Christ-exalting faith. And this is what it means to have saving faith. There's a sixth quality in here. Look at verse 9 with me. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Biblical faith is living, it's active, it's moving, it's growing, it's striving toward Christ-like holiness. And biblical faith is a journey. And what is a journey without progress. What's a journey without progress? This is one of the this is the sixth quality that we see of the nature of saving faith is that there's progress. You're not going to be sinless, but you should sin less. Zoom out. Zoom out over the course of your life. Look at who you were before you knew Christ. Are you changed? Is there progress? Has there been a journey? Or are you just as much like the world as you were when you started? Has God, when you've listened to the proclamation of His Word, the teaching of His Word, does He ever put His finger on something in your life and says, this needs to change? Does He ever shine His light into your heart and say, this needs to go? Or maybe He says, you need to put something here. Has He ever convicted you to change? Does He do that regularly when you hear His Word? And does the Holy Spirit empower you to do so? If today you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Instead, obey. Do what Abram did and obey. Do what God would have you do. Act on what He would have you do. Act on what He has convicted you in your heart that needs to change in your life. That's what biblical faith does. That's the type of faith that pleases God. That's the type of faith that honors Christ. That's the type of faith that exalts Christ. That's the type of faith that saves Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your work in us is accomplished through Your Word. And Lord, we thank You that we thank You, Lord, that You are the one who empowers us 
to do all these things and that this isn't how we become saved, but that this is how we live our lives once we are saved, not out of a sense of dreadful obligation, but out of a sense of love for you, loyalty to you, a desire to please you rather than pleasing ourselves and rather than pleasing others. God, we ask that you would help us to grow in these aspects, in the aspects where we may be lacking, in the, in the aspects where we recognize that there needs to be significant change. God, we realize that it's only by the power of your Spirit that we can change at all. It's only by the power of your Spirit that we can turn from our sin. And so, Lord, in the silence of our hearts right now, we confess to you that we are sinners, that we have sinned against you, and that we have earned nothing but your wrath. But we look to the one that you sent to bear the wrath that we deserve. And we confess. We confess what we have done. And we ask you to take our sin away from us, to wash us white as snow, and to help us change our lives, Lord, to, change, to be the one who changes our lives. That we may glorify Christ in all that we do. It's in his name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.